0: good morning, everyone. How are you today? It's my pleasure to be with you here, although I must admit it's a distinct change of venue. Um, For those of you who are new with us, uh, First Alliance not but a few months ago publicly planted a sister church and partner in ministry, or actually a daughter church and partner in ministry, Epic Faith, and I've been pastoring that church, and it's been exciting, uh, but certainly different to be here on a Sunday morning before you. Before we get into our subject matter today, because I'm not here to talk to you about epic faith, I'm here to talk to you about something that's near and dear to my heart and something that I believe that the Lord would have me share with you today. Let us ask him to bless that word here now. Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity to draw close to you. Holy Spirit, if we are honest, we must admit that there are many distractions. Many things pulling at our attention, wanting to drag us out of this place, wanting to drag us and distract us away from you. We pray, Lord God, that you would move in us this morning, that you would peel back the layers of our heart, that you would open us up and make us ready to hear your word, Lord God. We thank you for all that you are, for all that you do, and for this special day in your name. Amen. A little over a year ago, both myself and Pastor Keith had the opportunity to head out to the West Coast. I was actually, I grew up on the West Coast when I was very young, but I don't remember it. I was, uh, I think, maybe two or three when we moved back, but I've always wanted to go back. So uh, Keith and I did our best to look for any seminar, whatever it was, that was out on the West Coast so we could go. No, actually, that's Not the case. Keith happened to have a class that was uh, occurring out on the West Coast, and it was something that applied to me, and so I figured I would go out with him, and we went and took this class out there. Well, we flew into San Francisco, even though our course was in Santa Cruz, and in San Fran, we rented a car, and just sort of the two of us decided, well, we're just going to try and drive around the city. We didn't have a map. We didn't have really anything at our disposal other than the two of us and our great minds, So we head out uh, with our rental car and just drive into San Francisco. And amazingly enough, it was the only time this has ever happened to me. I, I think that the Lord's presence was definitely with us on this trip because we went into the city and all of the great venues that you think of when you think of San Francisco, we just literally started to hit them one after another. After another. And it was just like, you know, when you think of like the crooked street, we just were sort of driving, we're like, oh yeah, there it is. And we're looking for trolley cars, oh yeah, there they are. And then we were driving by the Golden Gate Bridge, and there was the Golden Gate Bridge. As we kept driving, though, off the shore, and behind me, actually, if you want to throw that picture up, is a scene of Alcatraz. It's also known as the Island of Pelicans, and it sits ominously off. The Bay, just outside of San Francisco. And it was known as one of the worst prisons, at least to be in, prisoned in. In its time, it was so well fortified that 26 people tried to escape and only five made it. And as you sort of peer out there, you can almost just feel like the oppression there. Like it's just, it's it's an island unto itself. Yet today what we're going to talk about is a prison which is much worse than the prison in that picture. It's a prison that we put ourselves into, that we are bound by. It's inhabited by those who are quick to claim rights, that are sensitive to wrongs. They're often obsessed with the bad things that happen to them in their lives. And sometimes it's that their circumstances are worse than the circumstances of all of the other people around them. Oftentimes the people in this prison gain pleasure in being victims of circumstance. People in this prison also gain a sense of power over their enemies in holding things over their enemies. And tonight, as we or this morning, I'm so used to speaking at nighttime now, this morning, as we speak about the very subject of unforgiveness, the prison of unforgiveness, we find Christ in a dialogue with Peter, actually in Matthew chapter 18. and before we get into that scripture, we find that Christ is going to speak to Peter in a parable form, and Christ does this often and in an awesome way because He is the master teacher. And we find that one of his major forms of teaching throughout the Gospels is that of a parable. And it's his way of taking something that has heavenly meaning and translating it into an earthly situation. Sometimes that earthly situation is set apart so that only those who would know the Gospel would actually understand the meaning, almost like a puzzle. Other times he uses a parable in a way that's very clear and direct so that his listener knows exactly what he's trying to communicate, so that all listeners know exactly what he's trying to communicate. And that is the type of parable that we will look at today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, where you can read it along with me uh, behind the screen. And this is what uh, Matthew writes in regards to Peter's conversation with Jesus. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord... How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay me back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all of the debt that was yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owes. This is how your heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. It sounds sort of harsh and maybe an unpleasant God in an unpleasant ruler in this situation, but we're going to talk about exactly why this seems so harsh. And I think we, before we get into the parable, we have to look at some points of reference here and it starts really with Peter himself before we even get into the parable. And I love listening to what Peter has to say because he's so much like us. In fact, his question to Jesus is all wrong right off the bat. What does he say? If we turn back, he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Now, the interesting thing is, and we can put ourselves in this situation because we're so much like Peter. He asks the question, how many times should I forgive my brother? Because Peter would never do anything that would need forgiveness. I mean, he could have turned that question around. It could have been, how many times should my brother forgive me for the things that I have done? But right off the bat, he's pulling it unto himself. And then furthermore, he's very noble with his response. He says, should I forgive seven times? Well, this is noble mainly because in rabbinical teaching, they were only required to forgive three times. So by offering up seven, he's offering up more than double the amount. So he's like, should I forgive seven times, Lord? Jesus is quick to respond and he says, no, you should forgive 77 times. And in some translations, 70 times seven. But what Jesus is drawing attention to in this exact point is not the number. What he's saying is somebody who would forgive 77 times or 70 times 7 is in the habit of forgiveness. He's talking about being a forgiving person. Somebody who normally does, forgives others. Someone who puts themselves in the position to forgive other people. As we move on into the parable, we find that the unforgiving servant, the initial servant owes 10,000 talents to a king. Now, just so that we understand what that means, because I don't think many of us really know what does uh, one talent equal. A talent was equal to a thousand U.S. dollars. So, owing 10,000 talents would be like owing 10 million U.S. dollars, which would have been far more than any person in that day could have ever thought to repay. So, he owes a debt so great, so unsurmountable. That he could never give it back. Which is interesting because he asked for patience. That's the first thing he asked for is like, he's like, Lord, please give me patience for if you give me time, I will repay the debt back. Now the king, in his goodness, forgives him of that, knowing full well that no matter how patient he was, he would never get his money back because 10 million would have been far more than anybody could. But what does the guy do? Does he run out like Scrooge on A Christmas Carol after he has found out his wonderful life? He runs out throwing hams and rejoicing and frolicking all over the place? No. does the exact opposite. I mean, this situation, what this guy had been forgiven, I mean... Imagine being forgiven a debt of ten million dollars. I mean, this is better than Extreme Makeover: Home Edition, people. This is better than Ty and the the whole gang coming to your house and knocking it down and giving you a brand new one. You know, my wife loves to watch this, and she always she's gonna hate me for saying this, but I'm always after we watch uh, Extreme Makeover: Home Edition, I'm always sort of leery after uh, each episode. In fact, whenever I'm going down the basement stairs, I'm always kind of looking behind me because I'm thinking like. Gee, my wife would like to send in a nice video that says, My husband perished the other day. He tripped and fell down the stairs. And now we need a new home. She's actually not that evil. She's a wonderful lady. But they get some nice dishwashers and kitchens and that thing. Like, Wow. But this guy receives more than any of us could really imagine. He's forgiven a debt greater than any of us certainly owe monetarily. But he runs out and he grabs somebody that owes him something. Now this guy owes him a hundred denarii. And a hundred denarii is not a small amount for denarii was a day's wages. So it'd be like somebody who owed him a hundred days wages. So uh Christ is not minimizing the fact that this person did owe him a reasonable sum of money. But yet, in comparison to the $10 million, this 100 days of wages seems pretty small. So the guy runs out and he chokes this guy and throws him in jail. I mean, the nerve, right? I mean, he had just been forgiven so much, the king had obliterated his debt and was not requiring him to go to jail. And so he runs out and does exactly what the king could have done to him. Now, maybe you're starting to connect the points here that you're looking at this parable and you're starting to say, "Okay, I see what some of this stuff equals. But I want us to pause for a moment and be introspective, because I think when it comes to forgiveness, it's kind of one of those, yeah, I know, sort of things, right? You know, as Christians, it's one of those basic foundational building blocks. Yes, I know, we're all supposed to forgive, and I forgive, and so on and so forth. But do we really? I mean, if if I were to look into my heart, even this morning, could I say that I have a clean bill of health with all people, that I have unconditionally forgiven them, and I have let all things go? And I think sometimes for us, it's these simple these basic things that are so difficult for us to do. And forgiveness, I find, is one of those things that is so easy to say, but it is so difficult to translate into real life. Because when we're hurt, the last thing we want to do is let things go. We find in this parable that the unforgiving servant is the face that looks back in the mirror every day. That it's each one of us. Christ wouldn't have spoke it if it wasn't important. He wants us to look at ourselves, because I think in forgiveness, it's one of those things where, I'm even as I'm reading this parable, I'm thinking of a few people that I know need to forgive. It's always somebody else's condition. Like, oh yeah, you know, my mom, she really is bitter against, uh, against her sister and needs to forgive her. Or, or my best friend, he really holds a grudge. He's, uh, he's the type that really struggles with this. We're always looking at somebody else in regards to forgiveness and never looking at ourselves. For just like this unforgiving servant, we have been forgiven a debt much greater than we could ever possibly repay, no matter how patient God was. If he says, go ahead, I'll give you time, be as good as you can be. Try not to sin, try not to do anything wrong in my sight. I'll give you time, you can repay it. No, it would never work. We would never get there, so we're required to have any relationship with God that He would forgive us more than we could imagine. And so He has done. Like the guy in this parable, though, we run out and choke those around us, don't we? Even at the littlest things that harm us, that hurt us, We're so quick to run out and choke our neighbor. And I think it's significant that Christ said that this guy ran out and choked the guy. Because I think it signifies our ability to latch on and grab on and shake and not let go. For when we do not forgive, when we go out, when we hold a penalty against people, that's exactly what we're doing. We're grabbing on with all of our might. It's a cancer that grips our souls and it imprisons us. In fact, we find that wasn't it the guy that did not forgive that ended up in prison in the end? This is the main thrust, the point of unforgiveness, that when we do not forgive, we are the prisoner. When we do not let go, we are the one whose hearts are gripped with sickness and cancer that eats us from the inside out. That's why Christ drives this point home. But I think when we talk about forgiveness, I find that we struggle because we don't really understand what forgiveness is. There's so many definitions, and I feel like even in my own heart when I think about forgiveness, it's easy for me to stand there and say, yes, I have forgiven. But on some weird and twisted definition of the term forgiveness. Like on a very human level, like, yeah, you know, I guess I'm okay with what happened. I'm not going to hold it against them. But I think we want to look a little deeper at what forgiveness really means and also what it does not mean today. When we forgive, it means that we give up resentment, that we grant relief of repayment. And when I say the term repayment, I actually mean that in a twofold way. First off, that we release the person from having to repay us. So many of us, I think, when we think about forgiveness, we conjure up the idea of when they come and say they're sorry, when they do for me, even if they would show some gesture back to me, that is when I might start to let them go. I might release them. But that is not the condition of the word of God. That is not what it says. It doesn't say that the man went out and found somebody that owed him a hundred denarion and after he paid back one of them, he was okay with it. The condition here is that we unconditionally forgive. That there are no conditions to forgiveness. Forgiveness has nothing to do with someone coming and saying they're sorry. Is that good and can it help in the healing process? Absolutely. But is that a requirement for us to forgive? Absolutely not. We are to let go. Release them of repaying us. On the flip side of that coin, it's that we release the idea that we would repay them. Repay them with the evil that they may have done to us. Because I think that's one of the quick things that we jump to right away, isn't it? It's kind of like, I hope they get what's coming to them. Or, I'm going to show them, I'll make sure that he sees the error of his ways. And this is what we feel in our hearts and what grabs onto us. Yet we must release that because that's vengeance. And the Bible says that vengeance is not ours. We need to turn that over to God. And I want to be quick when I talk about this idea of repayment that I don't dismiss the idea of justice. Now, what I'm not telling you is if somebody came in and murdered one of your family members that you were required to give up justice. You see, we do live on an earth and there are consequences to actions. So justice is certainly something that is fair and it's open for us to potentially seek. But we need to be very careful that our justice does not turn into a payback. Because if our justice is circled around a payback, we have not released our resentment. You cannot say the words justice and payback in the same sentence. They don't go together. And if that is where our hearts are, we've missed the boat. But we must leave consequences up to God for God knows all things. And I think when we talk about forgiveness, forgiveness, we talk about this aspect, we're quick to grab it for ourselves. It's one of those areas where it's just really difficult to let God take hold of. Because if we were allowed to be hurt, sometimes we feel like maybe God isn't going to step in and do the right things after that. But we need to give that over to God for it is His, justice is God's. When I think about forgiveness, I think about the... Terms forgive and forget. you ever heard that? I mean, everybody says, if you are going to forgive, you must forget. That's very difficult because if forget means to erase, I may not be able to do that. I mean, how do I take something, maybe something so horrible that has happened to me, so difficult that I could just pull it out of my head and pretend like it never existed, and cast it away, we don't just have a hard drive up here where we can press the delete button. But I think when we talk about forgive and forget, we're actually looking at another aspect of forgive. so you, you can define forgiveness in three ways. I've actually looked this up in the dictionary for us. It can be defined as the loss of remembrance, to treat with disregard or to overlook. And I think when we talk about forgive and forget, we're looking at the second two of those to treat with disregard, and to overlook. That whatever offense has been done to us, no matter how many offenses have been done to us, that we treat it with disregard and we put it in the past and we overlook it. To give you a everyday example of this, because I think that this exact point is sort of difficult to communicate into our real lives. You know, my kids, uh, and for any of you who have young kids, you know this to be true, they get on a kick with a given show. Or a given movie. You know, for a while it was like watching Finding Nemo, like 50 times a day. Then it was The Wiggles. Then it was, you know, whatever silly Nickelodeon show is on. Most recently, I think they're into watching that that movie Elf, that Christmas movie Elf. But they watch it over and over and over and over again. Every time they get up, they want to watch a movie. And every time they go to bed, they want to watch a movie. And during the afternoon, they want to watch that movie. So much so that I don't know that I can ever forgive them for watching this so many times. But when you think about whatever has been done to you, I want you to think about it as a movie. It's a movie that has been given to you and you now possess. And having that movie, it's not something that you can just throw away. It's part of you. It's part of your library. And for those of us who choose choose not to forgive... It's like taking that movie and playing that movie over and over and over again, inflicting the same scene of pain into our lives every day, every moment, and allowing it to play, be on the television all the time, wherever we go, it's showing. Unforgiveness requires us to take that movie, put it in its case, and put it on the shelf. We know that it's there. We know that it exists. We can't get rid of it. But we refuse to replay it. We refuse to pull it back off the shelves and put it into our DVD player or VHS or computer, whatever however your technology level is. We refuse to do this. In every moment that we find ourselves reaching to the shelf to grab it, we stop. We say no. God has given us the ability to say no. And put it back. I'm not gonna look at it again. At first it's difficult. It's very hard not to pull it off the shelf and look at it. But eventually you reach a point where it becomes easier. And God allows you to just keep it there. We are required to keep it on the shelf. Don't play it over and over again like a broken record. Now, a few quick things of what forgiveness does not mean, because this can be confusing for individuals as well. Forgiveness does not require that you approve of what happened. It doesn't mean that you have to be okay with it. It just means that you are putting it in your past, that you're saying, I'm not going to hold it against the person. You don't have to approve of it and make light of it, which means that we don't have to justify it. Have you ever had somebody, you hear somebody, or maybe it's yourself where somebody does something to you and you begin to justify it. Like the girl that was raped and she was saying maybe I shouldn't have dressed that way. Like it's her fault. Forgiveness never requires us to justify the actions of other people for there are many horrible things that can happen to us. What happens to us is not important. We don't have to make light of it. We don't have to say that the person was right in doing it. We just have to say that we aren't going to hold it against them. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that it will go back to the way it was. Now, I'll be quick to add in situations that we should always, particularly as Christian brothers and sisters, look to regain a, 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 a place where it can be the same. I think we've got to strive in our lives to reach a point with people at all costs to get things back to the way they were. And if we're truly forgiving, this can be possible. However, there are some things that happen, again with earthly consequences, where it may not go back to the way it was. Some people are so caustic, they choose to inflict pain on others. And that's who they are. Many of us know people like this. And if it's like that, God says that you need to forgive them. But he doesn't say that you have to stand there and allow yourself to be hurt all the time. So you have to diagnose that situation. You have to work gently with God on that. But I will again advise you to work your best to make it the same. But not all situations will be. Now I may be saying all of this and you may be saying, yeah, I know. But you don't know what happened to me. You don't know what my father did to me. You don't know what my best friend did to me. You don't know what happened to me when I was a teenager or a child or so on and so forth. A friend of mine had given me a book, uh, I think it was about a year ago, uh, to read, and it was about uh, a situation where there was some really intense pain. I'm going to read you an excerpt out of this because I think it really relates so much to our subject matter. And the guy's name is Jerry Sitzer, and he writes a book called A Grace... Disguised, And we're going to pick this up. Uh, he's actually out with his family. Uh, he has his mother with him, his wife with him, and his kids. I believe he has three daughters and a son or, or two daughters and a son. Either way, they're out uh, for the night and they're getting ready to leave. And he writes these words. He says, by 8.15, the children had had enough. So we returned to our van loaded and buckled up and left for home. But then it was dark. Ten minutes into our our trip home, I noticed an oncoming car on a lonely stretch of highway, driving extremely fast. I slowed down at a curve, but the other car did not. It jumped its lane and smashed head-on into our minivan. I learned later that the alleged driver was drunk, driving 85 miles an hour. He was accompanied by his pregnant wife, also drunk, who was killed in the accident. I remember those first moments after the accident as if it was everything, as if everything was happening in slow motion. They are frozen in my memory with a terrible vividness. After recovering my breath, I turned around to survey the damage. The scene was chaotic. I remember the look of terror on the faces of my children and feeling of horror that swept over me when I saw the unconscious and broken bodies of Linda, that's his wife, my four-year-old daughter, Diane, and my mother. I remember getting Catherine, then 8, David 7, and John 2 out of the van through my door, the only one that would open. I remember taking pulses, doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, trying to save the dying and calm the living. I remember the feeling of panic that struck my soul as I watched my wife, my mother, and my daughter Diane all die before my eyes. I remember the pandemonium that followed. People gawking, lights flashing from emergency vehicles, a helicopter whirling overhead, cars lined up, medical experts doing what they could to help. And I remember the realization sweeping over me that I would soon plunge into a darkness from which I may never emerge the same. Normal, believing man. In the hours that followed the accident, the initial shock gave way to an unspeakable agony. I felt dizzy with grief's vertigo cut off from family and friends, tormented by the loss, nauseousness from the pain. After arriving at the hospital, I paced the floor like a caged animal, only recently captured. I was so bewildered that I was often unable to voice questions or think rationally. I felt wild with fear and agitation as if I was being stalked by some deranged killer from whom I could not escape. I could not stop crying. I could not listen to the deafening noise of crunching metal, screaming sirens, and wailing children. I could not rid my eyes of the visions of violence of shattered glass and shattered bodies. All I wanted was to be dead. Only the sense of responsibility of my three surviving children and the habit of living for 40 years kept me alive. Jerry goes on to talk about this horrific situation and he says that eventually his tears went away. He could no longer cry. In fact, there came a time where he wished he could cry. But the pain was so deep he couldn't even express it in tears. The interesting thing was, was the guy that was drunk uh, gets off on a technicality. Doesn't even go to jail. Yet, yet Jerry talks in this book about God's calming peace to allow him to forgive. To allow him to move on. And I ask you the question that I don't know what has happened to you in your life, and maybe those words brought back some very terrible things in your life. But I want to tell you that if he's done it for one, he can do it for others. And that he is the God of peace, he's the God of patience, he is the God of comfort. And he wants for you to be out of prison. He wants for you to be out of the prison of unforgiveness. And I think moving into forgiveness requires us to realize that we ourselves have been forgiven. That as we said earlier that there was a man God that came to this earth, the Son of Jesus Christ came and put his body before us on a cross somewhat like this one. And he gave a sacrifice for you, although at one point you were God's enemy. That you had nothing to do with God. Your will wanted nothing to do with God. Yet he was obedient, even unto death, the Bible tells us. And that he sacrificed and gave more than we could ever repay. And that because of that, he wants us to be free. In fact, God commands it. You know, we recite the Our Father often. In fact, we did it earlier, and I put it there because I wanted us to, to say it. Um, it's a lovely prayer, and it's, it's a prayer that Jesus is teaching us how to pray. But we oftentimes forget the words that come directly after the Our Father. And they are these words. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, there are many interpretations of this, and this seems scary for some, and some individuals say, well, if I don't forgive, can I go to heaven? But I think what Christ is talking about here is the exact point he's talking about in his parable. And that is when we do not forgive, we are prisoners. And when we do not forgive, God cannot release us from the prison that we hold ourselves in. God cannot remove the pain. God cannot remove the hate until we choose to forgive. Christ cannot release that from us. God cannot release that from us and he wants so desperately to do so. So we need to forgive because God told us to and he tells us the key gives us the keys the way to get there. And I think for many of us we struggle with forgiveness because we ourselves struggle to forgive our own person. We're in such a habit of self-deprivation, de- self we're in such a habit of hating ourselves, of not being able to forgive ourselves of the wrong that we do, that when it comes to life, we don't even know how to do it. We've internalized it so much to the point when we step outside of ourselves, we have no ability to communicate it to others. And it's almost like nerves exposed all over our body just waiting to be harmed. And that every little thing is an act of unforgiveness. It's an act of hurt and it's an act of pain. And God doesn't want it for us. I realize as well that forgiveness is not easy. He never said that it was. And it's an event and it's a process. I mean, forgiveness does require us to draw a line in the sand and say at some point that we are going to forgive. Yet there's a process to it, there's a process of healing. There's a process of God moving in. There's a process of God changing us. It doesn't mean that we weren't hurt, but it means that we put all of those things over into God's hands and we say, God, this is too big for me. Please change me. You see, if if you're unforgiving, the only person that's hurt is you. If you do not forgive, the only person in prison is you. If you do not forgive, the only person experiencing pain is you. And there's no route to to getting out unless you forgive. Today, maybe you have an unforgiving heart. Maybe you didn't even know it. But I want you to examine yourself and find where the areas where I am holding things against others. Maybe it's something big and it's obvious. Maybe it's not. Release that person today and you may find that the person that was released was you. That you will be the person that is no longer in pain. I'm going to say a prayer here in a minute. And I want us to just be open and honest with God and communicate to Him and allow Him to speak into our lives and tell us exactly what he would have us to say. And I want you to be honest with him today. Release yourselves. Walk out of here today free people, not captured by the prison of hate and unforgiveness. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you today as people who struggle to do what is right. And I know in this area is so difficult, Lord God, because it feels like it's almost beyond us at times to be able to forgive. Yet we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would move in, that you would change, that you would rearrange our hearts, that you would do mighty things, Lord God, that you would make us the people that we are not. Dig deep into our souls, Lord God, we open them up to you today. We ask you to survey them. Show us where we are not forgiving. Release us from this prison, Lord God. Change us. Today, I pray especially for those who do have an unforgiving heart, who have struggled because of something that has happened to them, either in the present or in the past, that is so horrible, so difficult to let go of. I ask, Lord Jesus, Lord God, that you would be with them. Show them the path. For those who have an unforgiving heart against you, maybe it's something that's happened and they just don't know how to love you anymore. The hurt has been too difficult. And they ask, how could God allow this to happen? God, give them truth today. Help them to know that you know all things and understand all things. Wrap your loving arms around them. We thank you for this wonderful day and the great opportunity to come before you as your children. In your name.